you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us today. If you were able to enjoy the three-day Dr. King weekend, hope it was a wonderful one for you. It's terrific uh, for for me getting to uh, go out and celebrate my birthday on Saturday night, which was uh, terrific, and working around the house for others. If you were able to do things despite the rain, to enjoy yourself, that's great. And of course, very importantly, to remember what uh, Dr. King emphasized during his years of so much work around the United States, and of course, that legacy, which continues to this day. Coming up later on Air Talk, I'm really looking forward to a conversation in the second hour, and I'd like you to be a part of it. The only criteria are that you love where you live and have some very specific examples of why it's a great place to live. So we're going to open up the phones, hear from listeners next hour. What is it you love about your Southern California community? If, if, if you don't live in Southern California, you're listening on the app anywhere in the country, that's great as well. But particularly love to hear about the neighborhoods of Southern California and what it is you appreciate about where you live. But we begin with the very latest on the classified documents that have been found over the past few days at the residence and office of uh, President Biden. These documents from his time when he was vice president in the Obama administration. With us to update where we stand, White House correspondent for Politico, Chris uh, Catalago. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for being with us. Um, first of all, what, what's the count or or uh, amount of documents that we we understand have been discovered to this point? So we're talking less than a couple dozen from what we know, but the the White House and um, some of the president's personal attorneys who have been working on this have added some caveats in their in their recent statements, which came over the weekend, basically saying that. Because those uh, uh, some of those attorneys who initially found the documents um, at the time, including this this first uh, find uh, discovery, which was on November second, and then the subsequent ones, did not have uh, don't have sort of authorization to open up the the envelopes and files and and look at the precise um, number of pages. So they they've said that they're going to sort of hold off on giving a conclusive number until um this 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 uh the justice department folks and the special counsel who has since been appointed last week by uh, attorney general merrick garland um can really take a look at these um there's been a couple as you know stops and starts here in terms of the search being concluded and then not concluded because uh more documents have come up including uh a handful of pages five more over the weekend uh, that were found by um, the president's personal attorney when he was meeting with uh, 
um, government officials to turn over other documents that have been found, uh, classified documents at, at uh, President Biden's Delaware home. And so this has been, you know, the, the number and the, the sort of uh, uh, subsequent discoveries has kind of uh, made this a tough to follow story for folks, um, especially after White House officials themselves came out and said that the search had been concluded before more documents were found. And Chris, who has physical possession of the documents now? Is it is it the Justice Department? Have they made their way back to the National Archives where the Justice Department is looking at them there? Who has them? So we also don't know where where all of these are. They've, They've presumably all been turned over the the archives were notified in each of these cases um and then um these documents would have been um furnished to the the doj um that a lot of that happened prior to the special counsel being uh being named in the case so um you know they are the they are the ultimate uh ones who will be reviewing all of this material um, obviously, Merrick Garland has handed off um, that investigation. And so that that's who will be looking at all of these. Uh, so far, we, we do not know, uh, similarly to the case with uh, former President Donald Trump, what these documents actually are. So it's very, very difficult for people to pass judgment on um, how big a deal this might be without knowing what the contents of them are. We're talking with Politico White House correspondent Chris Catalago joining us to talk about the uh, classified documents which uh, President Biden uh, apparently took with him or his staff did after his term as vice president had concluded. Uh, Chris, what has been the explanation from the White House as to what the intent was to do with the documents? Um, there have been some statements uh, from the president's lawyers that have um, gotten at the fact that this this was a mistake, that these were mistakenly uh, brought to the places they were found. As you said, the Penn Biden Center office, which was set up for him in Washington, D.C., after his time as vice president, and then also in his home um, in, a, in a garage and in a, joint, uh, uh, a room nearby. Um, and so... You know, everything else, I think, would be speculation at this point. Like you said, this could have been a case where um, folks were packing up boxes at the at the end of kind of a harried time where you got to move out of your offices and you're moving stuff. Um, this could have been a there are any number of scenarios um, that could have explained why these um, or, or could shed light on why these would have been taken. Um, what we do know is that they should not have been. And I think there's obviously an acknowledgement of that, that uh, no matter sort of what your rank in in government, um, these are not supposed to be uh, taken out of protected areas. And so a lot of why they may have ended up where they are um, right now is, is all sort of in the in the realm of speculation. Well, and Chris, I, I wonder now that we've had, you know, two cases of this, um, with former President Trump, and I'm, I'm not saying that the two are uh, the same circumstances, but we have two incidents where at least classified documents were walked out of um, areas where, where they were legitimately kept to places where they shouldn't have been. Um, 
are the thought now that there may be, you know, presidential libraries with stuff that they're not supposed to have or that, you know, other that that maybe this is um, more commonly more commonly occurs than had been thought. Yeah, I think that there's certainly I can tell you both uh, in my office and I think uh, sort of across media uh, reporting happening right now, both uh, in terms of how common this might be. Uh, obviously, it's not supposed to happen. And who all might be searching through their, like you say, libraries or personal spaces um, for these kinds of documents. Um, you know, you, you could look at former uh, presidents and vice presidents, you know, including some who have uh, written about their own time as president and might have boxes of documents just generally um, uh, and and sort of trying to get at this question, I think, about how widespread this might be. I think, you know, one one difference on its face between the Biden situation um, and and Trump is not only that that Trump objected to sort of, um, you know, going through the documents, returning documents, um, you know, which gets at this question of whether there was there was obstruction in that case, which has a separate special counsel appointed to it, um, but also this idea that uh, Donald Trump was in possession, um, as we know, of far more documents um, than we know of so far uh, that were in possession of the current president. We're talking with Politico White House correspondent Chris Catalago. Uh, and you know, as we're talking, this sort of raises the issue of what is the process for filtering papers that are removed from high-ranking government officials or elective office holders who have access to classified materials? Because that that is conceivably a, a fairly large number of people. With us is Santa Clara University law professor David Sloss. Uh, thank you very much, Professor, for be- for being with us. So what are the procedures to try and assure this kind of thing doesn't happen? Uh, thank you for having me on the show. Um, but before addressing that, let me highlight one thing that hasn't come up yet, which is I'm sure you've seen some uh, reporting about the different levels of classification. But, you know, classified documents can be confidential, secret, top secret, The highest level is what's called SCI for sensitive compartmented information. And one of the most disturbing things about the revelation about what President Trump had uh, at Mar-a-Lago was it included these SCI documents. As far as we know so far, based on the current reporting, uh, there's no evidence that uh, President Biden had any Uh, SCI documents. The procedures for those are really very different than the procedures for materials that are classified at a lower level. Because for SCI documents, the general rule is in order to see those documents at all, you have to go into a secure vault. So most government employees are not allowed to have these documents with them, even in their own offices. Now, obviously, for the president, the rules are different. Somebody can bring the SCI documents to the president. But then once they take the documents to the president, he looks at it and sees them. Typically, what happens is documents are taken away and returned to a secure vault for storage. That's not true for the lower level documents. So 
it wouldn't be surprising if you go into an office in the White House to find a bunch of secret or top secret documents that people have sitting around in their offices, including in the Oval Office. But uh, but the SCI documents are really subject to much tighter controls. So, uh, you know, it's it's not hard to imagine various ways in which in which somebody mistakenly ends up, what, let's say, with a document that's classified as secret. But it's hard to figure out how somebody mistakenly ends up with a document that is marked as SCI, because I can tell you in my time in government, I never had those documents in my office. If I wanted to see those, I had to go into a special vault to see them, and they were much more tightly controlled. Well, it seems odd to, odd to me. Let's take the SCI, these these most um, uh, confidential documents, the highest level of secrecy, how there wouldn't be someone tracking the return of those documents, that they just wouldn't live in perpetuity in even a president's office, that there wouldn't be that some logging and tracking of materials so that they would come back to whoever holds those documents uh, on an ongoing basis basis and and for things that are just confidential or lower levels of classification still why is there not some process where whether it's from the national archives or some uh in-house um organization or individual vets documents that are removed um for people who have access to even confidential documents. Why Why is this all left to the person vacating the office to determine what should be returned? Well, uh, there there is no, I mean, maybe there should be, but the way it's done, there is no record. I mean, you know, when again, when I was in government, I could take a document marked secret and I was allowed to make copies of it for particular purposes. I was also allowed to take that if I was going to a meeting, I could carry that with me to a meeting. It had to be then returned to my office and locked up in a locked safe at the end of the day. But for SCI documents, they actually do track all those. There should be a limited number, and somebody's keeping track of how many of those are and where they are, right? So the record keeping is much more stringent for the SCI documents than for others. But for even top secret documents that are not SCI, um, I don't think anybody knows how many copies there are of those documents out there. You know, uh, it's just not uh, it's not done. Again, as you say, maybe it should be done, but but the procedures don't require tracking on, on an individual basis, individual copies of those documents. I guess I'm thinking, you know, elective office holders, they come and go. And and so it would seem you just don't have a lot of control over it. And then with this SCI highest level of security, um, my question is, you know, why why is it that reportedly people within Trump's circle are the ones who reported these documents were being held at Mar-a-Lago as opposed to um, there there being an earlier, you know, effort to try and, you know, we know the president has these SCI documents. He's leaving his office. Someone needs to go over there, make sure they don't leave the bill, leave the building. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I can really answer the why question, but clearly those are ones. I mean, look, he had no authority to take any of those with him once he was no longer president, right? Uh, he, you know, every government official from the president on down, once they leave office and they're no longer a government employee, they have to uh, return all the sure. class, all the classified documents that they've got. So. 
why he ended up with so many of them there, I don't, I don't know. Uh, hold, hold that thought, because Chris Catalago has to go. Let me bring him back into the conversation. Hold on just a second, please. Chris uh, Catalago, I know you have to run. Is, is any of this, to your knowledge, being talked about for changing procedures? So far, no. I think that we saw on Thursday and Friday uh, House Republicans who are sort of digging in as the special counsel was named um, and looking into uh, this issue from an oversight perspective have just gotten the ball rolling with with letters um, and questions uh, looking into it. Now, of course, that brought the sort of predicted response over the weekend from the White House saying there was far less interest from these Republican House members uh, over the, the Trump situation uh, than there is the Biden one. But I think the question of uh, procedures um, on both sides of the aisle, um, re, you know, has has obviously come up in the past and been kind of a, a question. But so far as it relates to this case and any real detail about about making changes, uh, no, I think that, that most of the focus has been kind of on the substance of of this particular story. And part of it, like I said, the, the reason this is sort of so late evolving is because there just continued to be over the last week new information about releases of, of documents or discoveries of documents. And I think that has kind of slowed uh, the story around the question of both what might be in them, um, but also, you know, larger structural uh, overhauls like you're mentioning, um, which, uh, you know, have, have yet to really materialize in the overall discussion around this. Chris, thank you so much. We really appreciate you sharing your reporting with us. Yes, thank you very much for having me. White House correspondent for Politico, Chris Catalago. David Sloss is Santa Clara University professor of law. Professor, uh, we have listener Dan who emailed us saying, isn't one difference between the Biden and Trump cases that the former president asserted ownership of some or all of the documents found at Mar-a-Lago? I don't recall uh, whether uh, that is the case. Professor, do you recall, has he actually claimed that he is the proper owner of these government documents? Uh, Former President Trump did make the claim that he had declassified some of these documents and therefore it was permissible for him to have them with him at his home because they were no longer classified. Uh, He hasn't provided any evidence to back that up, but there is a distinction here in that President Biden has basically admitted that you know, he has no business holding on to these and he's happy to return them. Whereas President Trump uh, said, oh, I, I get to keep these. They're mine because I declassified them and they're no longer restricted. Professor, thank you very much. We really appreciate you being with us and sharing your expertise as well as your experience uh, handling a classified material when you were in D.C. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Professor David Sloss, Santa Clara University Professor of Law. Coming up on Air Talk, China, what's happening with its economy? The slowest growth it's seen since the 1970s. Not surprising given the extreme COVID lockdown, but also big news that for the first time in uh, many decades, China's birth rate was lower than its death rate. We'll talk about that as its population declines when we come back in just one minute.
Coming up later this hour, the controversy in bowling. Yes, another American sport which is rife with controversy. We'll talk about how pin setting at bowling alleys has become a highly divisive issue. Bowling alleys, of course, are trying to survive economically after uh, they were closed for a significant period of time during the pandemic. Uh, bowling alleys have, because of changing American habits, have you know had to find new ways of of inventing what they do and and finding ways of attracting people to come in and play. But we're going to talk about how pin setting, uh, what sets those pins back up again for the next ball to be rolled, has become such a source of controversy. Right now, though, we turn our attention to China. Joining us from the Milken Institute, the economic think tank based in Santa Monica, chief economist William Lee. He specializes in Asia, trade, the global economy, and job creation. Bill, it's good to have you with us again. We always appreciate it. Let's talk first about the demographic uh, wave that's hitting China with now deaths surpassing births for the first time how long has it been? Well, uh, yeah, this is a really shocking news because uh, China has always had the ambition of surpassing the United States and, as being the largest uh, economy in the world. And the, the secret sauce for doing this was to be able to grow its economy uh, very fast. And, and one of the ways that it was doing that was to have large population growth. But now, in the last census, we've discovered that China's population is actually slowing, and now the numbers shockingly says that not only has the population's growth started to slow, uh, it's actually declined by 800,000 people, and this is the first time it's happened in over 80 years. So, so that that means that China's plans to become the world's largest economy are going to be put on hold, or else they're going to have to change their playbook. China can no longer be the low-cost manufacturing hub for the world. Um, it has to be able to say, "Come to us," because we're not just we don't we not only have a large uh, cheap source of labor for you, but we have to have a more productive labor force, and that's going to be tricky because productivity in China has also been dropping. Uh, to, Twenty years ago, what? the productivity growth in China was two point seven percent. Now it's down to like one point seven. Why would that be with uh, the technological advances that have been made in the past couple decades? Oh, Larry, that, that's the, 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 the big, big question. Uh, how is it that China has invested so much uh, in its history? In fact, the basis of its growth has been cheap labor and major investments in public works and infrastructure. Um, well, it, it turns out that they've over-invested in, in public works and infrastructure. Um, the ghost cities and, and bridges to nowhere are examples of that, uh, an example of, of bad planning because they, they have not really listened to the marketplace signals as to where the investment was most needed, which was the private sector. And so what we see now is that uh, China has so overinvested that its consumption is only, say, 55% of GDP, whereas in the United States and most developed countries, it's closer to 70 to 80%. So you can see the imbalances in the Chinese economy are starting to wreak havoc with their ability to grow. Uh, and their ability to, 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 to really provide its citizens with a better standard of living because its per capita GDP uh, is, is nowhere near that of the United States. We're talking with Milken Institute economist William Lee. He's chief economist at Milken. If you have questions about what's happening economically in China, we're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. You can also email your question to comments at kpcc.org. Please include your location and first name. 
might we see in China what we're already seeing in the United States and is perhaps happening in Europe as well, where we're seeing the slowing of population, where people are working older than in the past because they're needed to keep working to do jobs there aren't enough younger people to do? Well, we both see reflections of that in China, but don't forget, China is a very different society. It doesn't have the social safety net and, and, and um, institutions that we have here. Uh, for example, one of the things that has saved the United States from the aging population syndrome is our immigration, uh, our historic uh, uh, access to the U.S. Uh, uh, labor market by immigrants. Uh, now, we're running into some kerfuffles uh, recently about what is legal and illegal immigration, but immigration truly is the source of U.S. growth uh, and, and, and its, its secret sauce for remaining the largest economy in the world. Uh, in China, uh, we don't have a lot of people say, gee, I would love to go to China to make my living and, and make the, a better life for my family. Uh, so, so what you have there is an aging population, and as, as um, uh, the grandparents are, were really needed for taking care of children. Now we have an imbalance where there are way more elderly than, than there are young people being born. So there's a, that, 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 that excess number of, of elderly people are, are, are now demanding more and more in the way of social services. And that also is straining China's, uh, China's uh, medical system and, 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 and social assistance system. Bill, with China doing away with the one-child policy, which was designed, of course, to reduce population, um, what have we seen in the way of birth rate in, in China since uh, that requirement's gone? Well, it's improved a bit, but as in most countries that have developed uh, out of the emerging market status, uh, an agrarian status, into a more post-industrial age, um, women just don't want to have four or five children. Right? <laughs> um, that, you know, that's, and so, so having families, uh, uh, incentivizing women to have children and to give up their, their, their um, careers is something that's very difficult. Uh, we see that around the world, especially in, in Asia. You see that problem in Japan. You see that problem in Korea uh, and, and all over the place. Uh, so, so, so China really has not successfully incentivized uh, the, 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 you know, more, more births. But one of the things that, that we should note, by the way, Larry, is that um, you know, now that China has relieved itself of its zero COVID policies and it is trying to reopen again, um, most economists are saying, well, uh, the, the rebound in China will be a locomotive for the rest of the world. And, and there are some questions about that because, as you have heard in the news, the infection rates in China are just spreading like wildfire. Um, you know, the, Beijing and Shanghai are reaching 80 to 90 percent COVID infection rates uh, because of the, the poor vaccination uh, uh, policies they've had before. But more importantly, the elderly are the ones that are dying uh, and they're overwhelming the crematoriums and funeral homes. So, so the, the recovery may not be as smooth as people think. And again, this aging population uh, is, has become a bigger and both bigger vulnerability for China. Well, and, and let's talk about uh, where the economy is right now. The the economy grew at, at the slowest pace in, in a number of, of decades for China. Is this really all a COVID lockdown phenomena, or are there other factors that play into it? Well, it, it is the result of the, um, the lockdown in the sense that um, the lockdowns have disrupted a lot of the production that has gone on in China. Uh, China, just think of China as just a major low-cost production hub for the whole world. And if, you, if your workers are not able to come on, line to, to, on the lines to work, uh, China's economy grinds to a halt. 
Um, and that's exactly what's happened. Um, now, one of the things that they're trying to do is relieve the, the regulations about when you're allowed to go back to work. In fact, medical workers are told, even if you feel crummy, you have COVID symptoms, come to work because you're so needed. They did the wow. same thing for a lot of factory workers. Uh, and so China is trying to revive its economy, uh, taking more and more chances uh, with their workers. Back to the population issue, Bill, do you think China might consider uh, financial incentives for people to have more kids? <laughs> well, I, 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 they have actually tried uh, similar things in the sense of uh, if you have more children, you will get more benefits. Uh, their education will be paid for and, and so on. Uh, and that really hasn't helped. Uh, I, think, I think one of the things that we've seen across the world uh, as emerging markets start to mature and get more and more income, uh, the desire to have more more large families goes down. Um, it's it's something that um, um, economists have seen that they, what we call the, the you now here's a jargon for you the income elasticity of children is very low. <laughs> that is, the more income you have, the fewer children you really want because you know that it'll be costly to bring up these children. Um, so so right now in most developed countries you find that the, the, the birth rate is barely replacement, right? Barely at the two, two kids per family. If you see the documentary One Child Nation about China's uh, policy, you, you see how ruthlessly it was enforced all around the country and um, uh, how, how you know, people um, were just deeply traumatized and, and you know, what happened to so many of the, the children that were born uh, that the families uh, didn't keep or couldn't keep. Um, it's just and now to look at where the country is now. It's just such a dramatic turnaround, Bill. Absolutely. And, and there are lessons here for the United States. I think, I think one of the things that we have to keep in mind is the importance of growing our population and making it more productive. Uh, productivity depends upon investment, and, and, and you see China you know, way overinvested, but yet its, its productivity has gone down. So the lessons for the United States are don't direct investment into things that you think are important, which is what China did. Let the market determine where the places the, the money should go for investment, uh, and, and allow the population to grow naturally by birth rates and by immigration. Those are the things that have kept the United States in its number one position for, for decades and decades and hopefully for decades more going into the future. But if we start messing around with policies to affect immigration and investment, um, we're going to be looking down the, the road where China is right now. And of course, when you're talking about uh, infrastructure, you've got many environmental concerns because sometimes what what's the interest uh, for business from an economic standpoint doesn't quite fit with what is the infrastructure interests of, of people who live in communities affected by it. But, Bill, I appreciate your being with us, talking with us about China's economy. As, as always, thanks so much. We'll talk with you again soon, I trust. Thanks for having me, Larry. Chief Economist at the Santa Monica-based economic think tank, the Milken Institute, William Lee, joining us on Air Talk. When we come back, the controversy in bowling over pin-setting equipment, which some say is fundamentally changing the experience of bowling. We'll find out what that claim is, and uh, we'll hear from bowlers as well. If you want to weigh in, we'll tell you how to do it when we come back in just 90 seconds.
Dare Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. Just a reminder, next hour, I'm really looking forward to our conversation about the neighborhood you live in and why you love it. There are thousands of neighborhoods in Southern California, from Santa Barbara to the desert area, within our listening area. I want to hear from you. If you love where you live, what it is you love about it. And uh, as long as it's something that other people could experience if they, too, moved into your neighborhood. So not looking to hear about your great next-door neighbors, although that's wonderful. But what it is about the people who live in your community, about the stores that you've got, the restaurants, uh, anything at all involving uh, the neighborhood where you live. We'll hear all about that coming up next hour. But right now, we turn our attention to bowling. I read a fascinating piece in the Wall Street Journal by Midwest correspondent Ben Kesling. The uh, title of the story is American Bowling is in a Knockdown Fight Over New High-Tech Pins. Ben, ben, thank you so much for joining us. I hadn't heard about this new pin-setting equipment. Uh, share with us why many bowling alleys in the country have switched out the pin sanding equipment they used to use well larry thanks for having me and uh there's yeah there's this new pin setting equipment that you're used to the old school uh probably you're probably used to the old school bowling alleys where the pins stand on their own you knock them down then that arm sweeps them into the back and then they get set up again well there's new technology where pins don't get swept in the back anymore. They've got these cords that stick out of the top that are called string pins. And when they get knocked down, instead of having to go into sort of a frame and and all the mechanical processes involved with that, that have a lot of breakdowns, these pins with the strings sticking out of the top just get picked up like marionettes and then sit back down in their places. And the manufacturers who make these things and bowling alley proprietors say that these things are a lot cheaper, a lot more reliable, and that it's the inevitable future of bowling. Wow. I, now, I'm old enough, I have to confess, I never saw the actual handset pins at an alley, but the father of my friend, as growing up in Inglewood, was a pin setter at the old Jolla Bowl in Inglewood. He literally, after the pins were knocked down, my friend's dad would go by hand set the pins up. This was even though there there was already by that point the automatic pin setters that had been introduced. That's what I grew up actually bowling with but uh, so what is it that that top bowlers particularly say about the pins and the characteristics of how they fall that's different um, with the new technology than with the old pin setting machines sure well i mean with with old school pins <clears throat> that can act on their own you can when you hit them in the pocket right that spot between the head pin uh and the pin right off right off adjacent to it when you get that nice curve in there and hit the pocket you get a lot of action off the pins and they can skitter here and there they can spin and they'll knock each other down in unpredictable ways and if you're you know a rank and file bowler larry i'm guessing you're not you're not a uh, professional bowler these Uh, days i'm Uh, not even a casual bowler last time i bowled (laughs) probably 10 years ago (laughs) Ah, okay. Well, hey, now's now's now's, now's a good the time, time to get back yeah, into. It. I actually enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, some someone such as yourself or myself, if you go to the bowling alley with these string pins, you're probably not going to notice a whole lot of difference in your game because, frankly, your my game probably stinks. But if you're a big professional bowler that that knows exactly what's going to happen when that ball leaves your hand, you're going to notice that you're going to have fewer strikes. 
Um, you're going to have otter spare combinations that are left and pens just aren't going to do the magical stuff that they do when they're left unencumbered by some sort of a string hanging off the top of them. All right. Well, I'd love to hear from listeners. If you're a bowler and you've had a chance to bowl with the new uh, string pin technology, I'd like to hear what you think of it. We're at 866-893-KPCC, 866-893-5722, or you can email us your input at atcomments at kpcc.org. Please include your location and first name. Uh, and Ben, how much cheaper is it for bowling alleys to use uh, the string technology instead of the, the old place setting equipment? Well, the, the actual dollar amount, there's, there's no way to put an actual dollar amount on it, right? Because you, it's like putting new insulation in your attic or something. It's going to cost you a lot up front, but in theory, uh, you know, 15, 20 years down the road, you're going to save money. And it depends a lot on the location of the alley. So in a place where, where there is, there are engineers and labor is affordable, it might be easier to maintain these older systems because you don't have to pay technicians as much. They're more readily, you know, more readily available to do the service. But in places, in markets where there's not a lot of technicians, young people aren't going into bowling machinery repair yeah. uh, as a preferred profession. Talk about a niche. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you know, like now there might be quite a niche for that. Yeah, so, right. Uh, yeah. yeah. But it, it so there's no way to say exactly how much is saved over time. But what I hear from from proprietors of large bowling systems when they build new new alleys that they're putting these in because they use less electricity, they're less prone to to breaking down according to the manufacturers and the bowling alley proprietors, and uh, and you don't have to have skilled technicians to maintain them. Uh, you know this this is you you spoke about uh, about the pin the the manual pin setters, yeah, the pen boys yeah. or whatever. So the era in which you were speaking of, it was uh, known by some as the, the era of the first great technological revolution in bowling, right? Which was the advent of the mechanical pin setter. The second great technological evolution was automated scoring. So you don't have to do the math on mm-hmm. your own because I don't know about you, but my math is probably worse than my bowling skills. And then this has been touted by some as the third great technological a wave in bowling. So I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe it's maybe it maybe it's inevitable. Maybe it's not. Ben Kessling at the Wall Street Journal, Midwest correspondent, joining us. Uh, wrote the piece: American bowling's in a knockdown fight over new high tech pins. Bobby Green is the co-owner and lead designer for the 1933 uh, Group, a hospitality company based in Los Angeles. Among their different properties, which really um, you know pay tribute to but update historic venues, they operate the old. Highland Park Bowl, which if you haven't seen, is wonderful. I mean, it's just like stepping into a totally different place. Uh, Bobby, I appreciate your being with us and and talking about it. So um, for your bowling alley, is this something you would ever consider? Larry, uh, thanks for having me on. Um, uh, Absolutely not. I think this is absurd and silly, frankly. and now, of course, I'm a bit biased because I'm coming from uh, a nostalgic uh, sense of, of bowling, and we create kind of a time travel experience. Putting something new and modern in there would just, just destroy. Yeah, it would them. take away from the whole ambiance. Yeah, exactly. But just as a as a traditionalist in most things I do in life, I find that uh, you know cheaper isn't always better. Uh, and if you look at bowling itself, it's a 
the act of uh, a ball knocking down pens, well, if the balls are hanging by strings, uh, inevitably something something's going to happen. A string is going to knock a pin down when it, when it normally wouldn't. Um, and it's funny because to even hear people talk about this because historically bowling alleys have spent lots and lots of money to keep bowlers happy. And in this sense, I think it's quite the opposite. Now, if you look at um, Highland Park Bowl, we have what they call above ground ball returns, meaning after the ball comes back to you, it's above ground the whole way. Now, this creates a little channel. And in in the 1950s, when bowlers started getting really serious about their spin ball, Mm -hmm. they started kicking their legs out and back much further than they ever did before. And they started hitting these channels. Oh, so that's why it went below surface. That's why. And so bowling alleys would spend a fortune to put it underground if they wanted to keep league bowlers happy and coming or they went out of business and a lot of bowling alleys went out of business around that late 50s 60s transition so to do the opposite and do something silly with strings i think is kind of going backwards in the realm of keeping bowlers happy this might be fine for you know kids bowling or maybe you have a sunday afternoon kids bowl or something like that but I can't see uh, anyone, even a hobbyist bowler, being very happy with strings hanging down. Uh, well, I'd love Bobby, to hear. Bobby, you make a great point that uh, that's the, well, a lot of times we talk about with this the whether or not it's the it's the act of the ball hitting the pins that changes. But you, as you said, you deal in nostalgia. And every time you go to the bowling alley, you're stepping back into a time remembered, right? Uh, a Proustian time of, of past. And perhaps it's not the actual act of the pins falling down and whether or not that's true to form, but whether or not the entire ambiance of the experience is what makes string pens eventually not get adopted by rank-and-file bowlers. I'd, argue, point. I'd argue even the mechanical pin setting has its own rhythm that we've become accustomed to as almost part of the ritual of bowling. We'll continue our conversation. I'd like to hear from you if you are a bowler, what you think about this new technology, which many bowling alleys are touting is a way to stay in business given the absence of techs who can repair the mechanical pin setting equipment that's been used for many years. I'd like to hear what you think. We're at 866-893-KPECC or email us at atcomments at kpecc.org. We'll be back in one minute. We're talking about the new bowling technology, which has become highly controversial in the sport. A way for bowling alleys to be able to operate and stay in business, given the high costs of maintenance for mechanical pin resetting machines. But uh, drawing the ire of bowlers who just don't like having strings attached to the top of pins, which allow for the fast and less mechanically involved reset, which the idea is to save money. But a different experience, say people who have bowled in those in those alleys. We're at 866-893-KPECC or 
or you can email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. Bobby, are you aware of, of whether any of the other local bowling alleys have installed the new equipment? I have not heard of anyone installing that equipment. You know, it's funny. It's not actually a new idea. Uh, you know, there used to be these games. They were kind of like a shuffleboard game where the pins were only about five or six inches tall. And they would hang from strings. And, you know, it was a novelty, and that was fine. But I have not heard or seen of an actual bowling alley that has this new pin sinning machine. All right, let's take a listener call from Mitch in West Los Angeles. Mitch, you're on Air Talk. Good morning. Uh, when I started bowling, there were actual people at the end of the lanes resetting the pins for you. Yeah. It seems to me that there's a, there's a job in a world where, you know, we're always looking for jobs for people who may not, you know, have highest education and why should we let technology destroy our fun? Well, the thing is, Mitch, you would probably need for a large bowling alley multiple people to do that. And I wonder about the liability insurance these days now with the because because pin setters got injured as I uh, as I recall. Uh, joining us from the Wall Street Journal, Ben Kestling has written about this. Ben, you chime in on going back to human pin setters. Yeah, so um, I'm sure that um, Bobby, being uh, being a fan of of all things bowling and nostalgic, is familiar with a, a bar called the Holler House in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which has the oldest sanctioned lanes in the United States. The Holler House opened in 1908, and the Holler House still uses human pen setters. They've got wow. pen boys and pen girls back there. I got to go hang out in the pits with uh, with uh, with a young man who was doing this as essentially a summer job. You know, some people mow lawns. This guy resets pens and send, and picks, picks up your bowling ball and sends it back down the track to you. You, and, you, know, uh, you know, I have heard of that place. <laughs> I, I have yet to visit. But uh, since we did the restoration of Highland Park Bowl reopened, I have met two fellows in their 80s that worked there when they were young uh, setting pins. And, you know, unfortunately in California, especially Los Angeles County, uh, the price of, uh, of labor w- might be prohibitive of actually doing that. And unless we could lobby and maybe bring back a child labor, you know, cheaply again. But I, I doubt that's <laughs> going to happen. Yeah, I don't think we're hiring <laughs> underage kids to be pin setters of all, of all, even if you were, not that. Uh, how many would it? Ta- how many lanes do you have at Highland Park? And then how many human pin setters would it take? We only have eight lanes, uh, and I think uh, uh, about you could handle about three lanes at a time. Uh, you know, but, but, you know, the pin setting machine was invented right after World War II. So about 1948. Um, and a lot of it wasn't necessarily to eliminate the labor cost. It was more to set the pins quicker. So ag- again, spending more money for the bowler experience. Uh, to, to for a happy experience. Yeah, that makes sense because you'd have to be patient enough for the person to spot pins, and you also introduce human error into it as as well. Ignacio in Westchester, good to have you with us. I understand you've bowled with the string system. Yes, so I there's a bolero here in Westchester. Um, I actually went bowling yesterday, and it was my first introduction to like the string system on the pins. Um, as you guys mentioned already, the strings do play a huge role in how they like fall. And when you do hit the pocket, it just like, it creates these really weird, like splits, like splits that I rarely ever see. Um, I'm not an avid bowler, but I've gone a couple times to like understand like how the pin is supposed to like react. Yeah. And 
I mean, it was a fun experience. It was the game was like faster. Like it didn't, I didn't have to wait as long for the pins like reset. Um, however, they're like on the string side again. Some it feels that the string like once you like hit the pin and it like wobbles. I feel like sometimes like the weight of like the string like will like push it over, so it's easier for them to fall. And then there's like a there's a window of like where the machine like registers whether or not the pin has fallen, and so even if it falls before like the gate like comes down, it will register that the pin's like still there. And in previous systems like the old system where like they fall and like the machine has to like set them back up and there's a whole belt system in the back. Usually when they fall they fall and they're gone, but that's not the case like with these string systems. And I'm you guys also spoke about um, like avid bowlers. Avid yeah. bowlers, I think he called them rank and file bowlers. Yeah, there was, I think, six lanes of like hobbyists, and they seem to be having a blast. So, all right, those are just my two cents. I agree. No, it's great to hear your firsthand experience of bowling with the strings with the pins. That's Ignacio in Westchester. I appreciate it. Roy in Atwater Village emailed. I am flabbergasted. This fundamentally changes the physics of the game, and it's not actually really bowling anymore. What is the stance of the PBA regarding this Professional uh, Bowlers Association? Ben, real quickly, what does the uh, PBA say about it? Well, I think it's most important to talk about the U.S. Bowling Congress, which is really the gatekeeper for regulations, for changes in equipment, etc. Uh, the USBC uh, is kind of the holdout amongst a lot of international uh, international organizations that do regulation of these things. They do not want to certify them yet for 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 tournaments or for league play. They've gone through tests with their ro- robot bowler, and the robot bowler's name's Earl. And, uh, <laughs> for Earl ro- Anthony, ro- no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> so, the, so the robotic bowler uh, is able to consistently uh, throw throw these balls, and they have uh, they've done reports and scientifically found out that there are. Uh, changes in strikes and the way spares are done and whatnot. Okay. Ben Kessling of the Wall Street Journal with us. Bobby Green, his 1933 group, he's co-owner of and lead designer, owns and operates Highland Park Bowl, as well as the Tale of the Pup, the hot dog stand in West L.A. they brought back to life and the Idle Hour cocktail bar in North Hollywood. Thank you so much for being with us. We have much more to come in the second hour. I'll tell you about it in a moment. Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Hope you're having a wonderful start to your day. I can't wait to hear from you coming up later this hour what it is you love about the neighborhood in which you live. And there's so many incredible neighborhoods throughout Southern California within our listening area. If you're out in the Coachella Valley and you live in the old Las Palmas neighborhood of Palm Springs, love to hear what you think of your community. If you're in Whittier Junction in Pico Rivera, what about your community? Sunny Hills in Fullerton, City Terrace in East Los Angeles, Hollywood Riviera and Redondo Beach. There are so many interesting neighborhoods all over Southern California. I want to hear you tout the neighborhood in which you live and what makes it special that comes up later this hour but we begin with what's happened to job interviews we've heard so many accounts of people who 
in the past would have been hired after one or two interviews, going through a whole slew of interviews, uh, only to uh, be ghosted by the end of the process and never really hear back what the status is after multiple interviews. Joining us to talk about what's changed in the hiring process is Becca Carnahan, career coach and founder, CEO of Next Chapter Careers. She spent 14 years at Harvard Business School in career and professional development. Becca, good to have you with us. So what's going on with this? Well, thanks for having me, Larry. And you are absolutely right. The interviews just seem to go on and on and on right now. And we're hearing that from candidates across different industries. And I think there's a few different things that are going on here as part of the process. One, it's just easier for companies to have a lot of interviews, right? So Zoom interviews are a lot more convenient. They're easier for people to hop online and have multiple interviews rather than having a candidate come in and go through that process multiple times there. So technology is a piece of it, certainly. But there's also a piece, and I think this is something important to note, that companies can be doing this for a good reason, too. They are trying to, one, make sure there's a right fit for the candidate and the company. Hiring is a really expensive process. And two, multiple interviews can also decrease bias in the interview process. So instead of consistently saying, oh, this person's just like me uh, after one interview and saying, oh, they would be great in this role, having multiple interviews can decrease bias as part of the process. I was also wondering if it builds buy-in within the workforce. So if more people within the organization or the company are taking part in the interview process, can that help avoid friction down the road from people who felt like they had no stake in in this person coming Mm -hmm. aboard? I think that's a great point, Larry. Absolutely. When you have more people in the company involved in that process and getting to know the candidate, yes, they can feel like they have uh, their their voice heard as part of this process. And from the candidate perspective, when you do get to know multiple people within the company, you can see how your new role would interact with them. How might you collaborate with this person? And it gives the candidate more chance to ask their questions. I'd love to hear from listeners. If you're someone who found yourself in a whole series of interviews, what you made of that experience and whether you felt it was positive or not, or is it too much to put on the job applicant to go through a series of interviews like that, even if you don't have to drive to a location to do it and you're able to do it at home over Zoom? 866-893-KPCC, 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. If you're someone involved in the hiring process and this is something that's happened where you work, I'd like to hear what the reasons for it are. Why at the place where you work are there so many more interviews before someone is hired than there would have been in the past? 866-893-KPCC. You can tweet at Airtalk or you can email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. PCC.org. Please include your location and first name. Becca, I was also wondering if, you know, we have never had the degree of, of worker protections that we do now. Um, mm-hmm. It can be much more involved, the documentation and dismissing of, of someone. And so I wonder if that has made employers then all the more determined they're going to get the right person before they make the offer. 
I think that's certainly part of it. Making sure that you have asked the candidate all the questions that you want to ask. And on top of that, we're often seeing with job interviews now that it's not just the interview itself. There's also assessments and sometimes work projects that are part of this process. And that's, I think, where we start to get into this sticky situation of how much is too much. Uh, I completely understand where a company is coming from and wanting to make sure that a candidate would be a great fit for this role and add a ton of value to the company. And assessments and work projects can be a good way to test that out. And like I mentioned earlier, can also reduce bias. At the same time, many of these folks who are interviewing and many of your listeners here, they have other jobs, other responsibilities. And adding that much to the plate of a candidate can be too much. So I think there's value here for the company. I understand their perspective, Mm -hmm. but I think we do need to be respectful of the candidate's time and have transparency and communication throughout this process. I mean, I have to just disclose up front when, when we interview for positions on our production team, there is a project that goes with that because we Mm -hmm. have to know how are they able to write? uh, What sorts of editorial judgments are they likely to make? It's it's more than just talking to the person. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think we're all very confident it is a lot to ask of someone, but by the same token, it's something as you know, when you're involved in the hiring process, you really do have to know. Yes, exactly. And I think those projects can be really valuable. When I talk with candidates and even talk with companies as well, I think there's, if you're ensuring that you're allowing the candidates enough time to turn around a project, uh, that can be a big bonus uh, for that company to show that they are valuing the candidate's time. As well as making sure that if you are a company and giving a project to a candidate, that you're not then using that exact work work product uh, as something for your company, not paying that candidate for their <laughs> That's time. That's really cold. If you take yeah. what they did and then use it. <laughs> and it happens and happens, unfortunately. But wow. I've seen companies do this really well on the opposite side of saying, yes, I'm going to give you... Uh, a potential a case that we might face in the company or something that we have done in the past. And that way they can test out a candidate's uh, capabilities for this this new role without then using their work uh, without being paid for it. Bill in Santa Monica said, 10 years ago, I was hired by Hewlett Packard to be a consultant after 23 interviews. Bill, okay, if any listener can beat Bill, 23 <laughs> interviews. That's mind-boggling. Uh, I'd love to hear from you if if you can beat that. Bill in Santa Monica, 866-893-KPECC. Matt in Anaheim says, I've been applying everywhere and not hearing back from people after going through the whole process. This has mm-hmm. happened multiple times. Matt, that's incredibly rude. Um, what's behind that, Becca? Yeah. And I do hear this a lot from candidates, too, that they are going through an interview process and then simply not hearing back from the company. And from the company perspective, it could be that they have they have a lot of candidates. Um, I don't I don't think that's a great excuse, um, but I do hear that that sometimes they just have a lot of candidates and they can't can't, quote unquote, get back to candidates um, that are not moving forward in the process. But I do think it says a lot about a company's culture when they are investing their time back into the candidates who were not selected for the final position because you can really only hire one. But if you're spending time to reach back out to the people who spent time with you to be considered for the role, 
that shows that you are invested in talent and potentially keeping that relationship open with the person who could be considered for a role in the future. Especially if you've gone so far as to interview the person. Absolutely. I just can't understand how you wouldn't get back to them. Andrew in Irvine says, I think some companies use uh, the extended interview process as a substitute for hiring a qualified recruiter. That's Andrew in Irvine. Sherry in West Hills, good to have you with us. I understand you're involved in, in hiring. What do you think's going on here? Hey, you know, it used to be we would put out an ad and within a day or two, we would get like over 200 applicants. And it was really easy just going through the resumes and picking out the people who actually had the qualifications. And then we would interview those and we would be done. Now we, it takes us days longer and we get far fewer applicants and none of them have everything that we need. So then it becomes a game of, well, who do, who do I pick that we could maybe teach everything that they need in order to do the job? which takes longer too. And then um, you get them in and also who, who do I, how do I find somebody who actually wants to be here rather than what has happened, which somebody comes and works for two days and then they leave uh, for somewhere else that's closer to their house or pays a dollar more an hour. So it, and then it's become such a long, hard process that you don't even have time to call all the different people that you have tried to interview. The other part of it is, that sometimes we've hired somebody and um, then they don't work out and somebody says, well, I could tell you from day one this person wasn't going to work out because did you see this, this, this? And we realize that we need to have more of our office staff to be part of that process so we can find these things out before we hire someone. Sherry, this is terrific. Thank you for your firsthand experience and, and providing your expertise from your day-to-day work in this. That's Sherry in West Hills. Again, I'd love to hear from listeners. If you're someone who has been part of this marathon series of interviews, your thoughts about that experience, um, what seemed to be going on with the people that were involved in that process, if you are someone who was part of the hiring apparatus where you work, I'd like to hear about what's going on with these very long um, interview after interview after interview uh, hurdles for people to go through. Robert in El Camino Village, good to have you with us. Um, you know, share with us uh, about how you see things changing. Hey, Larry, thanks for having me. Um, so I led some hiring efforts about 15 or so years ago where we tried to bring in about 100 people at an innovation company. Um, we had a three-part system uh, process. One was a person that would basically make sure that the person uh, had the credentials, could uh, you know answer questions about what they allegedly knew. The second person would then give them uh, you know technical questions or would run them through scenarios to see how they could think through solutions and, and that they were open to creativity. I did the third part, which was strip away all that. I wanted to know who this person was. What did they bring to the table? What were their other interests in life? And because we were going to need them to be, you know, open-minded, innovative, and creative and work with teams, all that. So that was my part. I loved it. And at the end of the day, it cost us about 75 grand an applicant. Wow. In the door. Wow. Because of travel and because of us traveling and, you know, all the related expenses. Yeah. That's a major investment. So we had this three-part process. 
It was. And you got the fun part, Robert, the part where you really got <laughs> to know the people. I'm sure that was fascinating. What a great job you had. That's Robert in El Camino Village. Again, we're at 866-893-5722. We're joined by Becca Carnahan, career coach and founder CEO of Next Chapter Careers based in Massachusetts. She spent a decade and a half at Harvard Business School in career and professional development. We're talking about the inflation in the interviewing process, how what used to be uh, maybe just one or two interviews has now exploded to be a whole series of interviews for people applying for jobs. Uh, let's see, we have uh, so Rob in Van Nuys emailed, I've been interviewing at numerous places since the end of last year. Each has asked me to undergo no less than five to six online interviews via Zoom, even spending uh, uh, several hours prepping presentations. It's very time consuming and sometimes nerve wracking, but it also gives both the candidate and company insight into who one another is and what they would be, uh, like to work with. That's Saurabh in Van Nuys. Becca, quick thought on, on the posting, what, what Saurabh said. Yeah. And I think that Rob makes a really good point here that it can be a stressful process. It's time consuming. It can be stressful to do that prep, but it sounds like Rob is doing the work right as a candidate to to do that preparation, to be able to go into that interview and say, yes, I know how to explain my past experience, tell the stories that help get this across to the employer. And that that prep for the presentation, it can be really a really powerful way for a candidate to show a company how they're going to add value and for a candidate, a company rather, to see the candidate in action. Um, I definitely feel for Rob here around not hearing back from the the process, something we were talking about earlier. I think there needs to be as much communication and transparency, letting candidates know when they will hear back and making sure you're following up with candidates after the fact and ideally giving feedback when possible so that a candidate can take that into the next interview if this one particularly doesn't work out. One of the challenges, of course, is the series of interviews aren't necessarily done in a contained period of time. They can go on for weeks, which really puts the person's life on hold, particularly if that's the dream job, if that's really the job that they're hoping to get and they put most of their eggs in the basket. We'll be back in just one minute with more on this on AirTalk. Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. We're just minutes away from hearing from you. Tout your neighborhood. What is it love? What do you love about where you live? What is it about the people of the community, the places that you've got? It can be all kinds of different aspects and ideally something that uh, we wouldn't necessarily know your community has. That's coming up a little bit later. Right now, our focus is on interview inflation, how the process of hiring has become far longer and more complicated for people, what that means for the individuals applying as well as for companies. Daniel in Santa Barbara emailed 
emailed us at my tech company. We do interviews in stages. First, there's one or two screening interviews. If the candidate does well, they move to a round of five-minute interviews. The point of this, as you mentioned, to res- to respect the candidate's time and to use our own time wisely. I should also mention it takes us anywhere between one to six months to fill an open position. So as your guest today mentioned, hiring is a very expensive process, and we want to make sure we get good results. That's Daniel in Santa Barbara. Larry in West Hollywood says, I work in retail in a boutique shop. When we put out an ad, we get thousands of submissions online. We establish five-minute interviews to screen people before inviting them to fully interview. That's Larry in West Hollywood. Ray in Long Beach says, I'm a substitute teacher, and the interview process was surprisingly sparse. Just one interview and a background check. As someone who works with children, it's interesting that people working in cubicles have more interviews to go through than I did. Ray, thanks very much. As you probably know, and I don't know when you did your interviews, but there is such a desperate need for substitute teachers at this point. Maybe they're um, fast-tracking that process. Uh, Stephen in Hollywood says, I work for a tech company and their interview process is excruciatingly long. The interviewer makes you tell stories about yourself and half the time you're making it up. It's basically how good of a liar you are. Becca Carnahan, your thoughts about Stephen's point. (laughs) Yeah. uh, And I I understand the temptation for some people to come up with another story, but I think that people have so many great stories that are true. So I really encourage candidates to think back on their past experience and say, when have been the times that I have made an impact, that I have helped a company to to make money, helped a company to save money or fixed a process or change something for the better. And I promise you, when you think back on your past experience, you have those wins. So instead of making something up that you think sounds good, uh, look at the job description, think about what are they looking for and what are the stories that you can tell that are true that can help an employer get to know you and what you can do for them. Um, uh, one of our producers was sharing, I applied for a job at a podcasting company owned by Amazon several years ago. The first part of the process required me to do an assessment where I had to answer questions about product distribution and profit margins and quality assurance, questions that might have been revealing uh, about someone applying to work in a warehouse or sales role. But I was dumbfounded at why I was having to do this assessment, which I assume all Amazon applicants have to do for a podcasting job as one of our producers sharing that Jeanette in Sherman Oak says I'm a writer and a lot of times you'll write a pilot and you won't hear anything back so you just assume it's not going anywhere it doesn't take a lot of effort for companies to at least send an email saying thank you and clarifying you aren't hired that's Jeanette in Sherman Oaks Madison in Irvine I understand you drive for Lyft please share your experience Yeah, so um, I am a veteran. I served in the United States Army Reserve, but I also have deployment experience working overseas. Um, I have almost 10 years of logistic experience at this point. I decided that I wanted to go for my degree. I got my degree in communication studies, and it's been an entire year, and I still haven't gotten a job, and I've applied for hundreds of jobs, networked on LinkedIn, networked everywhere I can, and it's been really tough. Yeah. And Madison, so you go through the point of interviews and then you just don't hear anything? Yes. 
and it's it's really hard to take it on the chin and walk away. I'm pretty good at being told no. Yeah. I'm totally fine with that. But just being ghosted after three weeks, almost to a month of interviews, three uh, back or like every week I get one interview. So it's like, you know, three week process. I yeah. get to the last person and it seems like it's going well. I even got invited for one, one of the interviewers invited me for drinks after, which we'll get into that. I didn't go, but, um, I felt like it was going well. And yeah, then I just yeah. get ghosted and I'm like emailing them back. Like, Hey, what happened? What happened? And I get nothing. What, what kinds of positions are you seeking Madison? Uh, talent acquisition. Actually, funny enough. And I okay. really like the idea of helping people find jobs, which yeah. is ironic because I can't even get it. It, it, it is. Uh, yeah, I, I, I get that. Becca Carnahan, any advice for Madison? Yeah, Madison, first things I want to say is that it sounds like you are doing a lot of things right. So keep that in mind, that if you are getting into this interview process and you're being considered for these roles, you're having the conversations, that means that your your resume and the work that you're doing in networking is helping. So Just want to share that with you. And then secondly, something that I like to share with all job seekers is that there's a statistic that generally holds true year over year that around 80% of jobs are found through networking and referrals. And that number sounds really high, but they do studies on this year over year. And this is generally what, what they find. So when I talk with candidates about how they're spending their job search time, I really do like to flip it to spend 80% of the time building connections, ask, having informational interviews, talking to people who have made a similar transition that you have are looking to make, identifying hiring managers, asking really great questions. That's the work that is going to move the needle more than the online job applications. So it sounds like you're already doing a lot of this, um, but I would just maybe look at how you're spending your job search time and see if there's some little tweaks that maybe you could make there. And I do think that you're doing a lot of things right here. Um, keep Hold on to that, uh, to the personal branding that you're doing and all of that, and then see what little changes you can make to identify some other opportunities that could be a really good fit. Madison, we wish you all the best. Thank you for calling. Larry in downtown Los Angeles says, I'm an air class mechanic and there's a desperate need for those workers. I got hired a couple of years ago. It was a half day process. And I learned later they hired 23 out of 25 of the applicants at that time. So I think demand plays into the process. Undoubtedly so, Larry. I appreciate it. And Anthony and Downey emailed after two initial interviews, my girlfriend went through a third five-hour job interview talking to many of the higher-ups. The position was down to her and one other candidate only for the company to decide to hold off on the position indefinitely. Using up much of a candidate's time can be somewhat inconsiderate, unfortunately. That's Anthony in Downey. I want to thank you, Becca Carnahan, for being with us. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and talking about what's happened with uh, this uh, inflation of time required for people to interview for jobs. Thanks for having me, Larry. I appreciate it. Becca Carnahan, career coach, founder, CEO of Next Chapter Careers, just outside Boston. For 14 years, she was at Harvard Business School in career and professional development. 
Well, as I've been saying throughout the course of the two hours of air talk, I want to hear from you right now. It's just you and me talking about where you live. What is it you love about the neighborhood in which you live? Now, if it's something that the rest of us couldn't necessarily experience if we moved there, like you got great next door neighbors, that's wonderful. But I'm really looking forward to things that that people typically experience in the community where you live. We're at 866-893-5722. It's important I hear from you right now with your uh, commentary about the community where you live. Please keep it succinct. Really hit the high points. I can ask follow-up questions if we have the time to do so. But I'm asking you to just really get to the point about one or two things that really make the community in which you live a very, very special place. Maybe it's Garvanza in the Highland Park uh, area of Los Angeles with all its historic homes that are there. Maybe it's the Arlington community of Riverside, which is another just great neighborhood of Southern California. Maybe it's Pico Union in Los Angeles with its immigrant communities that are such a vital part of what's happening there and what you see on the streets in that community. We're at 866 Let us know about your community. You can also tweet at AirTalk, but please make sure you include the location that you're tweeting from. And you can also email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. Please uh, include your your location and first name in the email that you send us. While we're uh, uh, getting the calls ready to go, let me just mention to you the tickets are now on sale for the 21st Annual Film Week Academy Awards Preview at a historic venue in a great neighborhood. The South Broadway Theater District of Los Angeles will be there the Sunday prior to the Oscars. That's March 4th, 1 o'clock in the afternoon at the Orpheum Theater downtown L.A. All of our critics on stage will have clips from the Oscar-nominated films. It's a wonderful time. If you've never gone to the Film Week Academy Awards preview, this is a great chance for you to experience an event that people absolutely love. It's the biggest attended event that we do. So please come out and join us. We have a huge theater to fill. The Orpheum 866 KPCC. All right, now to the best neighborhood. Susan in Long Beach. What neighborhood are you in? Hi, Larry, can you hear me? Yes, go right ahead. Yeah, so I live near Retro Row in Long Beach. It's near on 4th Street near Redondo and Temple. It is an amazing neighborhood. We've lived in the neighborhood about 30 years. When we moved in, it was boarded up shops and it was crashed, and now it's got such a diverse set of Shopping, retro shopping, thrift stores, but also like 60s, you know, modernism shopping, a great art theater, um, restaurants of all types, and it's all walking distance. I know the neighborhood. It's a great, it's a great neighborhood, Susan. And Long Beach is full of incredible neighborhoods, but that, uh, retro row, uh, is just, it, it's one great place next to another. Yeah, it is. And they're extending it. It seems like every month or so there's a new shop a little further down. So it's expanding. It's an amazing area. 
All right. Susan, thank you so much. 866-893-5722. Sharon in Chatsworth, uh, what neighborhood are you in? I'm in I'm in Chatsworth in the horse property area. Horse properties, okay. Is that near the dam? Um, no, we're we're actually uh, right next to Northridge. Okay, all right. So so right a little little farther Valley north. Okay, and the north side. Yeah. yeah, okay. And we are all horse properties. And in fact, this morning there was an alert because there was a pony and a donkey walking down Devonshire. Somebody <laughs> had to, somebody pony got up. <laughs> brings back to mind the old Devonshire Downs. Sharon, that's great. So uh, how big is the property on which you live? Um, I have about three quarters of an acre. That's nice. So they're bigger properties. You can keep horses and livestock. That's terrific. And I assume this is something you share in common with your neighbors, right? You have, have good friendships with neighbors? Uh, most of my neighbors on my street actually do have horses. Um, I found my alpaca just wandering around one morning when I was fucking the dog. <laughs> Sharon, I appreciate it. Sharon and Chatsworth in the horse properties there. 866-893-5722. Uh, Frank is in Palm Springs adjacent uh, Cathedral City. Uh, Frank, share with us, uh, is there a particular neighborhood in Cathedral City where you live? Yeah, we live in the Aldea subdivision. It's right south of Gerald Ford on the border with uh, Rancho Mirage. And it's just a great neighborhood. Our dog got out while we were out for New Year's Eve. My neighbors found the dog, put him back in the house after they called me. Um, There's kids on the street. And the house we bought cost quarters of the average home price in california wow. and big wide streets great for walking and cycling um it's it was you know coachella valley was voted the best live music community in the country in 2016 it's a great place to live well and frank you're also very centrally located in the valley because you have access being uh you know southeast of palm springs you you know you can get uh out in the valley quite a quite a bit there as well uh, a cousin of mine i uh, had a house he rented up in the hills there cathedral city spectacular views of the valley from there as well absolutely beautiful we can be right up the mountain um in really 15 minutes um and then you're all the way out to the santa rosa um national monument and yeah. wildland california um seeing bighorn sheep and I've seen Bobcat over Whitewater. So uh, it's, it's, it's a really great place. Frank, thank you so much. 866-893-5722. What is it you love about the neighborhood in which you live? It's a chance for all of us to learn about what's special about your community. We'll continue. We'll take more listener calls. Uh, Teresa in Studio City says, I live close to Ventura Boulevard. We have a historic landmark tennis court and golf course. It's a beautiful park, open to everyone. Uh, and... Uh, Let's see. Uh, Tim in the Arts District of Culver City. I love the walkability and coffee shops of the Arts District, but I especially love the Rock and Roll Festival that showcases local bands and makes an effort to get people out of their cars to explore the neighborhood. Tim, thank you for that. 866-893-5722. We'll be back in just 90 seconds.
As fortune would have it, we actually didn't tie this segment to that, but the latest episode of LA Studios podcast, How to LA, that just came out today explores the history of the Fairfax District with host Brian De Los Santos, uh, Cantor's Deli, a handful of remaining Judaica stores to apparel standouts like Rip and Dip and Supreme. You can find How to LA from LA Studios on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also submit your neighborhood to the How to LA team to possibly be featured in a future episode of their series, Exploring, Exploring Neighborhoods in LA. Just go to LAist.com slash How to LA. That's LAist.com, H-O-W-T-O-L-A. All right, we're hearing from listeners where they live and what it is they love about their neighborhood. Let's talk with Brian in Santa Ana. Brian, what is it you love about your neighborhood? Good morning, Larry. Well, this is actually for anyone along the Santa Ana River Corridor. You can take the river trail down to Costa Mesa and get off at the OC Mix Mart. And it's just a great little place to hang out. They've got a you know, we all have wine shop. They've got a cheesemonger. They've got great coffee from Portola Coffee Lab. And it's just an all-around good little place to spend some time that I, I don't know if a lot of people know about that, yeah. with that access off the of Santa Ana River Trail. That's, that's great. Brian, what neighborhood of Santa Ana are you in? Um, I'm right next to, uh, it's, I think it's called North Tustin officially. It's okay. like right there off 17th and 55 area. Brian, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Let's talk next with Tina in City Terrace, Los Angeles. Tina, what is it you love about City Terrace? I love City Terrace. I used to live in Silver Lake for 23 years. We bought our first house last February. Uh, Couldn't afford to stay in Silver Lake. We found City Terrace. um, Kind of best kept secret. East side, wonderful views of the city, gorgeous views of downtown, older homes. Um, a great cafe, a great Italian restaurant called Barrio, which is, again, L.A.'s best got secret. Really good parks, fantastic library, and just wonderful people. Very warm community. Oh, that's great. Tina in City Terrace, Los Angeles, thank you so much. Let's talk next with Ed in Anaheim Hills. Ed, tell us about your neighborhood. Yes, uh, we just have a huge influx of first-time buyers, um, especially from uh, people people of color it's just so um reinvigorating to see so many new people come in and they're all millennials and um it, it's so nice to see with people coming in our community that's great ed in anaheim hills Mashid in santa monica what is it you love about your neighborhood hi larry um well the beach it's walkable the probably the best restaurants i would say and the weather so much going on and it's really a small town in a big city is the way i feel about the neighborhood and what neighborhood of santa monica do you live in mid city mid city okay so everything's right there for you that's great oh yeah everything every grocery store you could think of anything that you could need or want you can walk with your kids there and it's just a really, it really feels like a small town in a big city. Mashid, thank you so much. Talking about Santa Monica, 866-893-5722. Heather, in, we have two Heathers, but Heather in Atwater Village. Tell us about your area of Los Angeles. 
Hi, I moved to Atwater Village from Brooklyn 10 years ago and was immediately impressed by how walkable it was, similar to Brooklyn. And I absolutely adore Atwater Village because we bump into neighbors all the time. We are able to meet new people all the time. It just has a very kind of small town feel and a big city, and I just absolutely love it. Well, I love that when you get off of the two big streets that define Atwater Village, it's it's like you're wow. in that small town America. It has such a totally different feel. It's not the congested L.A. It's real neighborly. Yeah, it's wonderful. Glenda Boulevard, Los Angeles Boulevard, wonderful uh, streets and shops and restaurants. It's really terrific. Yeah, but when you get off it, it's just, it's quiet little uh, community. Heather in Atwater Village, 866-893-5722. Christian in Pasadena. Uh, what neighborhood of Pasadena are you in? We live right along Colorado Boulevard, and we can look right on the parade route from our uh, nice. condo, and it's beautiful. It's so much fun around the holidays. Do you do a party for the Rose Parade every year? We do host people on New Year's Eve, yes. And we walk around right before the parade and get to see everyone camping out, and it's kind of fun to be indoors and see everyone else be a little cold for the New Year. Yeah, well, and living right on Colorado Boulevard like that, uh, you've got tons of things, I assume, within a walkable dif- a distance. Dozens of restaurants and, and bars and so, much, so many different options to go out and just meet people and see people, you know, enjoying life every day. It's a lot of fun to people watch. Christian, great. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Uh, Christina in Orange uh, emailed, I love my city, the old town area with its great restaurants, breweries, shopping and hundreds of historic homes, friendly people and street performers at the Orange Circle Historic Plaza. There's always events going on. The east side has Orange Park Acres horse properties and Irvine Regional Park. West Orange has awesome diversity and is very walkable. Christina, I love that you bring up the city of Orange because it has all those great things. I I love that circle uh, in the historic plaza area. It's just, just great. I've met friends there, had breakfast there, uh, and just walked around. There's so much to see. John in Fullerton emailed, we have a beautiful, vibrant downtown with lots of restaurants, bars, and a great museum. But I think our crown jewel is the 26-acre Cal State Fullerton Arboretum one of only three botanical gardens in California and one of 27 worldwide with a top accreditation ranking. John, thank you so much. And Fullerton does have a great downtown. 866-893-5722. Heather, uh, who is in the neighborhood of Helms Bakery, that historic bakery that used to deliver loaves of bread and baked goods to homes throughout Southern California. Now, of course, uh, for decades, remade uh, with all kinds of stores and the like. Heather, what is it you love about your community? Oh, I love that you knew that about us. Uh, What I love about the Helms Bakery neighborhood is, of course, it's a vintage pocket neighborhood feel with adorable one-story houses that were built in the early 1900s, and you can walk to Culver City. Now, a developer wants to build a six-story modern building by us, so we've created this amazing communication network amongst our neighbors. And during the rains, when several of us had flooding in our backyards, one neighbor from another street came over and helped us all put pumps 
and hoses in our backyards and made sure that we didn't flood. So shout out to Kurt and Christine Thomas for saving us during the flood. All right. Oh, Heather, that's so nice. Thank you. Well, and how many years have you lived in Culver City or in that neighborhood of Helms? Uh, I've been here for 13 years. Okay. Even in that time, you've probably seen some significant change, I would bet. Massive changes because the train came in and we've got ID station now and platform. You can walk to almost anything that you could ever want now. All right, Heather, thanks so much. Talking about the Helms Bakery, uh, historic neighborhood, 866-893-KPECC. Is it Levi or Levy? I apologize on the pronunciation. In Franklin Village, Los Angeles. Please tell us about Franklin Village. Hey, Larry. Yeah, I love Franklin Village. I moved here about a year ago, and uh, there's just so many great things to walk to. There's the comedy uh, store that used to be UCB. I think it's still UCB, but under new ownership. There are several bookstores, the old Daniel French, which is now, again, under a new name. Um, Great restaurants and bars like the Oaks and Birds, and uh, we also have a grocery store that we can easily walk to. And then you're all within walking distance of Griffith Park, which is one of my favorite places to go. Oh, and yeah, just a wonderful experience. And, and you know, how was your name pronounced again? I'm sorry. Oh, it's Levi. Levi. Okay, I'm sorry. They gave you a Y instead of an I. All right, Levi, thank you so much. We're at 866-893-5722. We'll continue with listeners touting the neighborhoods in which they live. Great chance for us to learn about all these places. Gigi in Pasadena says, I live across the street from Caltech. The campus is unbelievable. I never left my childhood and lived near Caltech for 33 years. I literally have the Shire and Hogwarts house right across the street. Cheesy, I think I must know where you live. All right, 866-893-5722. We'll be back in just one minute. We're hearing listeners describe what it is they love about the neighborhood in which they live here in Southern California. We have been so inundated with calls. This is wonderful. Uh, I'm going to talk with the team about whether we want to make this a monthly feature on Air Talk. I think there certainly are enough communities that would justify this. Uh, so please be patient. I'll get to as many calls as I can. Uh, let's see. Jenny in Del Rey says, I love my community smack in the middle of Culver City. Quiet, clean. Not a lot of people know about it yet. That's Jenny in Del Rey. Tom in Costa Mesa says, Costa Mesa captured the magic of a small town in a big city. It has so much to offer from nature to great shops. We have the best restaurants, more affordable beach communities. Tom, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. I actually briefly lived in Costa Mesa for about nine months, uh, many, many years ago. Uh, let's take another call from a listener. It's Lindy in West Hollywood. Lindy, please tell us about your neighborhood. What part of West Hollywood are you in? I think you. I, I think it, it's Wendy, and I am in West Hollywood. Oh, Wendy, I'm sorry. I okay, am, that's okay. And I am east of Fairfax, which means it's the less fashionable section, but it is wonderful. And I have lived here since 2000. And oh, in terms of what I love about it, it's the diversity. There are elderly Russians with little delis where they can go, and you could really learn to speak the language just by exclusively shopping there. And then there's the ubiquitous. 
Trader Joe's and Target, which, you know, of course, are everywhere. But the thing I love the most is the city of West Hollywood government because it's the most tenant-friendly community, I think, really, perhaps in the country. And I live in an apartment. I'm a renter. And I've lived here since 2000. And my landlord's dearest wish is that I would either get very sick or die and have to, until they could re-rent the apartment, which they cannot do. So you like the rent control. Wendy, thank you very much. That's Wendy in West Hollywood. Jonathan in Montrose, please tell us about your community. Yeah, I I love Montrose. Um, Where Montrose is over here, kind of in between Glendale and La Crescent up, um, La Cunada area. And it's this tiny little quaint um, town, almost like a Hallmark Christmas movie, where it's like four blocks of a downtown area. (laughs) And it's it's super adorable. It's all it's very safe. It's tons of families, and they the city is really great about hosting awesome events. Um, So they do a holiday parade every year. They do a beer festival. They do like a wine festival. They do an arts and crafts festival. We have like Sunday. um, We every Sunday, there's a really amazing farmer's market on the downtown strip called Honolulu. And it's a lot of like mom and pop shops and restaurants and, um, and, and kind of family owned places. So I love the mom and pop feel of it, Jonathan, because there are a bunch of restaurants that are, that are good in Montrose that I like, but I just love, you know, after, after having lunch or dinner, they're just walking around in, in the little village area there. It's, it's like a step back in time. It's so, there's something so peaceful about Montrose. I know. It's so true. I, I feel like there, ever since I've moved here, I feel very, very calm, like living here compared to other parts yeah. of the city. And I think it's a really kind of a bizarre, like, or it's an interesting, like, kind of like um, living hack in L.A. where you have access to be able to get to, like, downtown L.A. and other parts of L.A. that are really accessible to you off the two freeway. Yeah. But you don't really have to live in the mix. You can kind of be on the outskirts. You know? Jonathan, so I... It, it feels really nice. I appreciate it. Talking about Montrose, I'm so glad that we have a Montrose resident able to share that. Lorian Burbank says it's the best location close to the Hollywood Bowl. Amazing restaurants and schools. Very much of a small town feel. Great for singles and for families. That's Lori in Burbank. Thank you so much. Uh, let's see. Emmeline in Irvine says, I live in UCI, graduate in family housing. I love the amount of parks in the area. Well, Emmeline, of course, that's uh, all part of the planned community, the design of Irvine, where parks were central right from the beginning. Leah in South Pasadena says, so charming here with great restaurants. The people are very friendly. We have a small but historic museum. I love that little two-story South Pasadena History Museum right next to the Gold Line Station there. That's that's a nice little place when that's open. Kim in Culver City says, in Culver City, I feel like I'm in a small town where I am. MGM built a a lot of duplexes and i live in one i love the film history aspect of the city yeah in fact uh, there's that whole neighborhood in culver city that was the back lot of mgm studios don in playa del rey says i love the sidewalks the sidewalks by the beach have the name of the uh, construction companies our half of the sidewalks went in before the depression with the houses coming in the 1950s much later it's like a fossil from the past on in Playa del Rey. I appreciate it. Uh, let's talk next with Will in Anaheim. What uh, neighborhood of Anaheim are you in, Will? 
So I lived in the colony, which is like the original part of Anaheim, founded a hundred and whatever years ago. Um, probably 40-ish years ago, uh, the neighborhood was kind of neglected by the city. Um, some failed revitalization efforts and uh, a lot of crime and that sort of thing. And neighbors came together um, to really make it a, a great place to live. Uh, and in doing so, they also formed just a great sense of community. Uh, there are people who have been here forever. I've only been here about six years myself. But there are people who have been here forever uh, and have really long-lasting friendships. And it's been really cool for those of us who have come in relatively recently. Um, we've gotten to, to be a part of that as well. And so, uh, you know, you go out to, there's, there's a bar called Colony Wine Merchant that kind of serves as like a cheers for our neighborhood. And yeah. you walk in there and you know the owners and nice. uh, you see people you know all the time. You're out just shopping and you run into people and you chat. Um, and I've developed real meaningful friendships um, just from the neighborhood that I live in and the people that I live around. That's great, Will. The Colony Neighborhood of Anaheim. Thank you so much. Max in Mar Vista says, I love living next to the Santa Monica Airport, seeing all the planes go by. And on Wednesdays at the golf course, they do live music. You can listen under the stars. And we have two uh, Los Feliz residents. Louis, who says, I live on Los Feliz Boulevard, lined with beautiful cypress trees. I love the views, the ability to walk to restaurants. And Caveri in Los Feliz says, I love the walkability, the 1920s architecture, proximity to Griffith Park. There are days I don't need my car. So interesting with so many of these communities. What's cited uh, are historic properties, a sense of real walkable communities, great restaurants, of course, parks, so many of the things. Nancy in Claremont says, I love all the Claremont colleges, really good schools, small mom and pop shops. We'll do this again soon. Stay tuned. Coming up here and now. Have a great day. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.